commonly seen, commonly heard about, and commonly adequately rehabilitated. Stay tuned for an in-depth and a special guest on our podcast today. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Welcome back to Therapist Motion Podcast. This is Dan hosting again today. I am joined once again by Tori Foster, who has been a frequent guest over the last 10 to 15 episodes and uh, is the clinic director of our Spoon and Physical Therapy Scottsdale Clinic, uh, is currently going through the fellowship, uh, Applied Functional Science Fellowship through the Gray Institute. So welcome back, Tori. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate having me back. And then we are joined by Dr. Sheldon Martin, who is an orthopedic surgeon here in the Phoenix Valley. Um, Dr. Martin joins us today and is going to be spearheading and assisting us in the conversation on ACL uh, rehabilitation. Uh, Dr. Martin is the head team physician for the Arizona Rattlers of the Indoor Football League and Hamilton High School out of Chandler, as well as the associate team physician for both the Arizona Cardinals and Arizona Diamondbacks. Dr. Martin, welcome. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. All right. So as I kind of alluded to in the introduction, um, we're going to spend a little time talking about a very common diagnosis that we see in, in sport and in patients of uh, ACL graft injury um, or ACL ligament inj- injury, excuse me. Um, so, you know, Dr. Martin, as a patient gets to you both athlete and non-athlete, can you just provide our listeners a little bit of a basis on um, your opinions on different ACL graft options and how you counsel your patients on on helping them select the best graft for them? Sure. So it's probably one of the most um, important discussions uh, I have with patients in the office. Um, it's certainly spent a lot of time talking about the different graft options and educating them. Um, and so the conversation that I have with the patients, it goes something like this. So, you know, there are really two broad categories of graft options. It's either your own tissue, which we call autograft, uh, or there's cadaver tissue, which we call allograft. Um, for the most part, I rarely or in, infrequently using allograft tissue. Um, that's the cadaver type tissue, um, unless it's a multi-ligament knee situation. If there was a knee dislocation, they have multiple ligaments out, and you're not going to have enough of the patient's own tissue, um, then you'll have to use allograft for sure. Um, or in older, lower-demand athletes, um, and, and they request that, um, I'll use it in those situations, but it's, it's infrequent. So much more often and most of the time I'm using a patient's own tissue for the ACL graft called autograft. Uh, and then when you start breaking that category down, there are really two gold standard options. It's either your hamstring tendon or your patellar tendon. Um, you know, more recently in the last, let's say, five, uh, maybe to 10 years, um, there's also been, you know, case reports of using quadriceps tendon, but it's certainly not mainstream and it's not gold standard yet. Um, but that is an option that patients, if they're Googling and searching WebMD and that sort of thing, they're going to see that. Um, but really, primarily, the two main options are hamstring and patellar tendon. Um, you know, I mean, we can go into, you know, the, all the details around those uh, if, if you'd like to do that, Dan. 
You know, I think that probably for the majority of our listeners, I think the biggest thing I would like you to hit on is is what are the early on implications for a physical therapist treating a patient who either received the the hamstring graft or the cadaver graft, let's say in the first four to six weeks of rehab, you know, what are the considerations of things you want to make sure a physical therapist is aware of to protect the integrity of your surgical repair or, 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 you know, North, a referring orthopedic surgeons repair. Sure. And so, you know, after we kind of have the discussion and we make a decision about which graft to use and, you know, really it comes down to both of them work equally well. Um, and so, it doesn't matter really if you have the hamstring or the patellar tendon, you know, for me, it's really the downsides and and the negative aspects of the grafts that really separate them. So it, you know, with the hamstring, you feel like you've had a hamstring pull for the first couple of weeks, but you know, you're, you're going to be involved in six months of physical therapy. So two weeks of feeling like you've had a hamstring pull is probably minimal, um, with no long-term strength deficits, um, as a consequence, uh, the downsides of the patellar tendon graft are chronic anterior knee pain or, or pain in the front of your knee um, at the donor site. And that can be permanent for a few athletes and individuals. Typically, it will go away, but it can linger for a long time. And so, you know, I think in the primary setting, I'm doing more hamstring grafts than patellar tendon um, you know, unless you're an NFL football player, then we're typically from a cultural standpoint, we're doing patellar tendon for those athletes. Um, and then, you know, to, to address your question and point specifically, Dan, there are slight differences in the rehab there. So with the hamstring graft, you know, we can be a lot faster in the early phases in the first, you know, zero to six weeks after, uh, the surgery and rehabbing hamstring graft, there are really no weight bearing restrictions. There are no range of motion restrictions. Um, and we can really just progress those individuals as quickly as they can progress uh, over the first six weeks. Um, we're a lot more uh, delicate, I'll say, and protective of the uh, patellar tendon harvest in terms of, you know, limiting a little bit of the active extension um, that patients are undergoing in the first two to four weeks, um, more, focusing more on passive extension. So they're really not flaring up that donor site and that patellar tendon harvest, um, where we've taken a, a little block of bone out of their patella and a little block of bone out of the, the tibia, which, you know, complications of that can be stress fractures or extension of fractures from the, from those, uh, donor sites. Um, it's certainly just, um, uh, flare up of that patellar tendon uh, harvest site. So we're more careful in our range of motion and, and not doing, you know, aggressive active uh, extension and, and strengthening. And I know we can do isometric quad strengthening exercises and e-stim to get the quad firing early on uh, to work around that limitation of no active extension. Um, and, and we're a little more protective kind of with the crutches and the weight bearing and having them in the brace and really protecting them from falling and, um, you know, actively kind of eccentrically ex- contracting that quad and, and really uh, flaring up that donor site. So there, there are differences in the, the rehab early on with the patellar tendon versus the hamstring, but long-term the data has not shown, you know, a real difference in success rates. Uh, they both work about equally well. And so for those reasons, that's essentially the conversation I have with my patients in the office. Um, And for those reasons, you know, I think in the primary setting, I'm certainly doing more hamstring grafts um, 
except for select situations like I mentioned about the NFL football players or if it's a revision setting and they've already had their hamstrings um, harvested from that leg, you know, then we'll go to the patellar tendon as, as the option. So, Dr. Mar, I appreciate that those answers to give better clarity to our listeners. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of some background before I jump forward my next question to you and just let the listeners know that uh, I've had uh, both of my ACLs reconstructed left and right. I've had uh, bilateral partial uh, meniscectomies and a microfracture. So my knees have gone through it uh, over the years. And my first ACL reconstruction, um, I was back in undergrad uh, playing uh, football. And I would say I didn't have the best guidance at that time. I didn't know what I didn't know. And I and, uh, was lucky enough to get back out and do what I love to do. And my second one was early in my professional career as a physical therapist. And I received better guidance at that time of returning to the activities that I love to do. But there really wasn't a gold standard of, of return to sport at that time. And so a lot of it was just kind of a feel out how much time had passed and whatnot, which is going to go into later in our discussion. So I guess that leads me to ask you, uh, what gives you confidence and or apprehension to clear an athlete back to her or his respective sport? Yeah, great question, Tori. And, you know, I think it's kind of this collection or set of factors that we look at, you know, when we start getting into that six to nine month range with our, our patients, um, that if they kind of are meeting all these criteria, we're pretty comfortable and confident with releasing them to, to full unlimited activity. And if they're not meeting all those criteria and you can't check all those boxes, you're not real comfortable with letting them go back. Um, so, you know, what are those factors? Well, it's a combination of, you know, the data that we're kind of collecting in the office with the athletes um, and then the information that comes from from you guys, from you and Dan and our, and our therapists out there that are rehabbing these patients. So, you know, what are the things that I look at in the office? Well, first of all, it's just their subjective, you know, um, feedback. You know, how do you feel about your knee? Are you confident in it? Do you feel like it's strong, stable? And, you know, if they're saying, yeah, it feels great, I'm ready to go, that's, you know, that's kind of the first thing. If they're saying, no, it just doesn't feel right, I'm having pain, I'm having swelling, it doesn't feel stable, I mean, that's a huge concern. Um, you know, then we kind of move into the more objective physical exam findings. So certainly I want, you know, the full range of motion at this point in the knee. Uh, we don't really want to see any swelling on the knee. Um, the quad circumference, uh, um, we typically want the quadriceps to be within about one centimeter of the, of the other healthy side. Um, you know, we're feeling the laxity of the graft. You know, sometimes these grafts will stretch a little bit over time. Um, you know, you see that more with the cadaver tissue, like I talked about earlier. Um, but you want a nice stable knee and a nice stable graft when you do those Lockman and, and anterior drawer and pivot shift maneuvers. Um, so, you know, you want all of those factors to, to look normal and feel normal, right? So normal range of motion, no swelling, good quad circumference within a centimeter of the other side and a nice stable graft. Um, you know, and then I think a, a big portion of this I kind of alluded to with when you're just talking to the patient is their psychological status that, you know, traditionally we haven't really looked at that or thought about that much or talked about very much. But you're starting to see that come into the conversations more, you know, from the podium and, and in the, the articles that we're seeing written about ACL rehab, you know, the psychological status of the athletes, I think, has a major 
um, impact on their return to sport. And so you see this definite, definite separation in where, you know, most of your patients and athletes, you know, they're chomping at the bit to get back the whole process through, you know, every time you see them in the office, they're, they're typically always trying to, you know, push the envelope and, and want to do more than, than they're typically ready for. And so that's the typical scenario. But the, the ones who are very tentative and apprehensive and, you know, they're getting into the nine month range, you know, they're now a year out and they're just, they just don't feel right about their knee. Um, you know, I think those are probably the, the ones that kind of fall out and don't get back to returning to sport at the same level, which is typically our, um, our standard or our bar that we set for ourselves for it was this a successful episode of care for an ACL injury and surgery and rehab? Could we get that patient or individual back to playing at the same level that they were playing at, whether that's professional or recreational or college, um, before their injury? Yeah. And I think if I were to paraphrase that, what I'm hearing is they have to have the comfort, the capability and the confidence to be able to return to what they love to do. Um, and I think that's something where you talk about some of the testing that you can do in office and some of the things that are critical measures for uh, what you see as success. But then there's also the feedback you get from the physical therapist. And, you know, w- when we collaborated, uh, you know, years back on looking at literature, we saw that there was such variance and there wasn't a kind of full testing spectrum of opportunity to help pers- uh, somebody have that sense of, okay, I'm comfortable. I have the capability and I also have the confidence to return to what I want to do. So talk to us a little bit about what made you interested to collaborate on a post ACL reconstruction return to sport testing program, please. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, it's a little bit about what you were just alluding to. I think traditionally our clearance of these athletes to go back to sport was a little bit simplistic. I mean, we were just kind of looking at these factors in the office and you're saying, okay, well, all those things look good, your motion, your strength, your stability. Um, you know, maybe we have a report from the therapist, maybe we don't. And so we're limited and saying, hey, what's your therapist saying? Oh, I, I look good. Okay, well, what does that mean, really, right? right. <laughs> you know, pretty simplistic. And so, all right, go get them, you know, you're, you're cleared kind of thing. And so I think in this culture of of where medicine is in this evidence-based medicine and really trying to let data and evidence drive our treatments. I think in that culture, you know, is where this idea of can we get a more um, data-driven return to play program or return to sport program that's really based on data. So instead of just saying, hey, what's your therapist saying? Hey, I look great. Okay, go get them. It's like, hey, let's let's get a, a report of, you know, running a bunch of different functional tests um, and, and measuring, you know, the distance that you can jump a, a single legged uh, hop with the operative leg versus the non-operative leg. You know, how how far can you do that? How fast can you do that? And compare it to the other side. And if we're starting to see a lot of discrepancies where on the operative leg, you can only do things 50% of the non-operative leg, you know, that's probably not adequate. You probably need more time to keep rehabilitating. Um, and so, whereas alternatively, if you're, you know, 99% of the operative leg versus the non-operative leg, you know, you're probably ready to go. So, you know, it's, it's trying to get more quantitative data 
and really a more complete picture of, of what's this athlete doing when they're working out with you guys because we don't see that in the office um, to really determine whether they're ready to go back to sport or whether or not they're not ready yet. And the whole idea there and the whole goal of that is to decrease the amount of re-ruptures of that graft or ruptures of the contralateral ACL, the other side ACL. And so, you know, those are failures of surgery. And so uh, the goal of doing this, of, of making a more um, uh, functional, um, quantitative, data-driven post-ACL reconstruction return to sport program is to decrease failure rates. That's really the driving mechanism there. Yeah, and, and I, th- I want to go back and highlight just a few things you said about being data-driven and looking at things that, you know, you used a buzz- buzzword in therapy of, of, of functional, right, and, and really what is functional. And, I mean, I know as, as you and Tori and the other members of that team that were kind of analyzing the research out there for report, re- return to sport testing, you know, you guys saw KT-1000 test metrics and you saw isoconnect dy- dynamometer test metrics and you saw you know like you you alluded to the, the the single leg hop you know whether it's for distance or time or the you know the the the, the cross hop and, and you know the triple hop and things like that that are out there that are have been proven to be highly highly effective in, in contributing to that data you know I think what what we've devised as a as a collective group between you and us is that the more data we can have across a greater spectrum, the better picture we have of that patient athlete's current capabilities, right? And then as a team, including the patient, we can all analyze that and say, wait, well, you know, I, I see a greater deficit than I would like to in this metric compared to what it was at the last testing juncture, well, why is that? And then, like you said, that that allows an opportunity to get into potentially is a a psychological barrier of apprehension or fear that they may not tell us as a therapist, but that they will divulge to you as their physician, right? Uh, and I think those things are are hugely critical. Um, so I kind of want to ask the two of you guys when you guys were scouring the literature. Gosh, it was probably what two two and a half years ago. Uh, maybe even longer than that. And, and as current literature has continued to come out, what were some things that stood out to you both as areas to further expand upon as well as areas of strength in the literature that, that then got built into this program? If it's okay, Dr. Mar, I'll take the first stab at that. Yeah, that'd be great. Go ahead. Um, so there there were plenty of validated tests over time. You could take a look at, for example, a reach test or a star test in different directions. Um, or you could take a look at a, a jump or a hop test. But did it take it through a, a spectrum of time through that rehabilitation? Or did it take it through different planes of motion? So taking a look at that, so maybe we start with a reach test. Okay, well, a reach test can then lead into a jump. And then if you jump, then you have to demonstrate success through three planes of motion, front to back, side to side, and and rotation, or uh, sagittal, frontal, and transverse, in order to go into then the hop test. And for example, these are just ways that you'd progress. We saw that it said plus minus about 90% for strength and 85% for uh, agility and multidirectional control stability. So we kind of progressed 
forward towards that point, towards the later stages of, of the phases. When we look at a, a rehab, early on, people usually aren't feeling too good. They just had surgery. And then we know that that graft is getting that vascular supply plus minus around six to 10 weeks post-op. So most orthopedic physicians, and I'll let you speak to this as well, aren't letting people jog into plus minus three to four months post-op. Right about then, people most of the time are feeling relatively good. And there's a testing within this uh, seven phases of return to sport, which really allows that person, if they're maybe not as confident to demonstrate success, and we can show that to them and reinforce that, and or maybe they're feeling confident and they're doing double leg jumps and they go to the single leg hop and they do fine in that sagittal plane. We take them to the frontal plane and like you said, they're at 50% and they're like, oh my goodness, not only is they at 50%, but it took them 10 seconds to think about how they were going to perform that hop test before they even did it. So it's that confidence component. So we go back into what we said. Do they have the comfort, the capability, and confidence? Do they demonstrate success before they move forward? Are they not painful and functional before they move forward? Or are they not painful, but they're not functional either? Or even worse than that, they're painful and they're not functional. So as we look at that, we have to take a look at that whole spectrum to get them to that point of that comfort, capability, and confidence at the end. And at the end, we want that to taste as close to the activities that they love to do. So if they're a football player, do we get them out on the field and have them do different types of drills and different uh, movement patterns, both accelerate and decelerate motion so that they have that confidence to go back to the sport? If we're saying we did a manual muscle test or we did a KT test and we said, hey, that it looks strong, how does that strength translate into acceleration, decelerate through movements? So I get real passionate on this, but it is something where I think we are deficit uh, as a profession of really helping these people return to their optimal function, minimizing that risk of a re-rupture. And I'll let you take it from there, Dr. Mark. Yeah, great point, story. And so, you know, my, my thoughts are this. I think it's it's probably, to answer your question, Dan, some of the more psychological elements where we need to do more work, where we're starting to understand um, that they have a major impact on, on that athlete's ability to return to sport. Um, I think we're pretty good from the, you know, the physical standpoint and and the, the data and the measurement of these different exercises and, you know, measuring their, the, the objective physical parameters of range of motion strength, you know, jumping length height those sorts of things but what we don't understand is that psychological component and how is that affecting their apprehension and, and potentially is that leading to you know more failures and re-ruptures um and so it's that that um personalized individual kind of element that i don't think we understand very well as orthopedic surgeons or maybe even therapists, you guys probably understand it better because you're spending more time with these patients than we are. You know, we're seeing them for five minutes in the office, um, you know, two weeks, six weeks, three months, six months, uh, and, and thereafter, if, if they're kind of taking longer to get back. But I, I just don't know what that means or what that entails, but I feel like that is probably the area where we need more work because, you know, from the, the surgical side of things, um, I don't know how much better we can get at doing an ACL reconstruction. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. from the technical standpoint of things, um, there's, I mean, there are few topics in orthopedics that have been more studied than, than ACL reconstructions. And, you know, we, we can't possibly do another study of comparing patellar tendon versus hamstring. <laughs> like it's been done ad nauseum. And or, you know, positioning of your tunnels for, for the graft and, 
you know, Dr. Fu from Pittsburgh, I mean, he spent his whole career, you know, trying to perfect the double bundle ACL and, and prove and show that that was better and is going to be better. And it just never really happened. You know, the, the clinical data just didn't show that it made a difference and was better than our traditional techniques, the way we've been doing it for, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, now, you know, his argument was, well, we need better tests. We need more sensitive tests. But still, you know, we, we go back to and fall back to that return to sport at the same level as kind of our gold standard and that bar that we set for ourselves. And, he, you know, he just could never really prove that you're going to get more athletes back to play at the same level and have less re-rupture rates if you do this double bundle ACL reconstruction that takes twice as long. Uh, as the traditional surgery. And so, you know, I don't know that we can get much better technically and, you know, putting these graphs in or getting a stronger graft or, or whatnot. So there's got to be another factor that we can tweak or make better or improve on in the ultimate goal of decreasing failures and getting more people back to playing at that same level that they were before. And maybe that's the psychological component. I don't know. Um, but I think that for me to answer your question is the biggest thing, Dan, that we can, um, that stood out to me over the years as I've, I've done a lot of these surgeries and, and, uh, participated in the care of a lot of these athletes. Yeah. I, I think you said it really well that there's one other piece that, uh, you know, that the surgery is done very well. Now it's up to that team, that, that physician, that physical therapist, and then the, the patient, the athlete. So another piece of that we haven't talked about is compliance. And I think that the test is really just a piece of information that allows us to make better decisions on how, how to help progress a program that's specific to that individual's needs. And if we educate, then they understand the whys behind it. And we know this is a very lengthy rehabilitation, which is why we're talking about it and why it's so important out uh, in the conversation and even in the in the lay public. So looking at that, if we are talking about that and we can get that person through that long, this is going to take you six, nine months. And this is these different stages we're going to go through. We're going to help you get there. They have a little bit of it. But then along that journey, you're reinforcing where they're at. Sometimes you have to build them up and give them more confidence. Sometimes you got to say, hey, this is why we need to slow this down a little bit for your long-term benefit. But we also have to look at as physical therapists that we're still part of a third party payer system. So some insurance companies might not allow return to sport, which is something that we're running into, which is just ADLs. What other resources do we have to help them? And I think a lot of PT facilities now have a wellness program or other ways that we can educate through a home program and we reduce frequency to still impart the success we need to. But I think that compliance of making sure that person continues through guidance through at least that six to nine months to help them return, I think a lot of people drop off. And then what does that do to their confidence? Right. What does that do to their ability to really say, well, I, I did therapy for a while. You know, we want to make sure we're guiding through that spectrum all the way from beginning to end. And ultimately, that's a team effort. But I think the test is a portion of the information to help us guide them better. But it needs to be done individually and keep them bought in. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Tori. Um, and I tend to see that uh, more in the high school population, especially lower socioeconomic classes where they just don't have the financial resources, they don't have the insurance resources, they don't have the social uh, support and resources to, to be able to um, participate and be compliant in this, you know, this onerous, lengthy 
um, commitment to rehabbing an ACL after surgery. Um, and so you see that and it, it, it's hard for us as surgeons, you know, we, sometimes we can sense that even before surgery, it's like, how is this individual going to be able to, um, be compliant for six to nine months in this very, you know, lengthy, complicated, um, process that really requires a huge investment, um, and so it's sometimes you're like, should I even do the surgery on this individual? You know, is it, am I even helping them if I know that they're not going to be able to kind of put in the work because of lack of resources uh, that's going to be needed to, to rehab this successfully? And, and so it's this internal conflict there that we see. Again, generally, I see it more in the high school population, but um, uh, that's, that's another great point and, and a factor that, you know, I, I think that's a real issue in, in today's um medical, um, uh, system that we have to work in. And maybe that's a nice time to the, our next question is, uh, a few years back, uh, you started an ACLA injury prevention clinic. Made you, what made you want to start that clinic? Um, you know, I, I think a couple things, um, I think just the, the frequency of the injury, right? So, um, it's a little bit hard to get an exact number, different, sources quoted differently, but probably somewhere around uh, 200,000 to 250,000 ACL injuries per year that we know of. Um, now, not all of those are surgical, but most times uh, this is a surgical injury. So most of those are being treated with surgery uh, and the lengthy rehab process that we've talked about. Um, so, you know, number one, just the frequency of the injury. But then two, even more importantly for me, is the impact that this injury has on, on the individual. Um, and, and that's true whether you're a professional athlete or you're just a recreational athlete and anywhere in between. Most people know what, what it means when they hear, you tore your ACL. It's like you're giving them a, a sentence of a, a diagnosis of cancer almost sometimes. Um, I, I literally just had a patient in the office yesterday, 35 year old, really active guy, um, came into the office last week. He had, you know, his little skiing injury, twisted his knee, sent him for the MRI and he tore his ACL. And so, you know, I del kind of delivered this, uh, information to him and he almost passed out in the room. You know, I'm talking to him and he's, he's getting clammy, he's starting to sweat. And after I, you know, I go through my whole kind of, uh, uh, spiel of, you know, here's what, you know, your options are and how we treat it and what we can do and the rehab. He just stares at me and goes, I need some water. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, it was clear that, you know, he heard nothing of what I said. Right. And so this, this injury has a huge impact on people because they know what it means. They know that it's going to be six to 12 months, you know, the better part of a year out of their life trying to get back to doing what they love to do, whether that's professional sport or just a recreational sport or just hiking on the weekends. Um, they know what it means and the impact that it's going to have on them and their life and their lifestyle for a long time. And that it's, you know, it's not even a guarantee, right? I mean, it's not a 100% return to sport at the same level, unfortunately. So people know what it means and the impact that that has on them is huge. And so it was really that along with just how commonly these injuries happen 
that kind of led um, led me to kind of basically plan this this event or you know put together this um, this ACL injury prevention clinic along with you guys um, to to try to uh, decrease the incidence number one of these injuries and there's some data out there that it, it does work um, when you implement these these prevention clinics and you get these athletes doing the preseason workouts and, and really making sure that they don't have any muscular deficiencies um, so that um, hopefully they have less of a chance of tearing their ACL in their sport. Right. And, and thank you for saying that. Just for the listeners, if you want to take a, a look at any of those ACL injury prevention clinics, go to YouTube, look up Sheldon Martin, uh, come MD at Ortho Arizona and Tori Foster, Spinner Physical Therapy, if you want to look at any of those examples. But looking at that, I think that the ACL injury prevention clinic, you said it right there, a lot of what we're doing is creating awareness, also talking about prevention. And not only did we have athletes there, but we had coaches, trainers, parents, and really what we're trying to do is create awareness of how to prevent these injuries that take such a long time to recover from. And hearing some feedback from the coaches is so valuable because, once again, they're the ones that are guiding these younger athletes in their early parts of their introduction to sports and exercise. And these athletes look up to them for that guidance. So I think it's been valuable not only for the athletes but for those individuals as well as we look to just create better awareness in the community of how we can minimize this as much as realistically possible. Yeah, and you know, I mean, to, to second your guys's points on that, the importance of that ACL, you know, prevention or reduce the likelihood of future in, uh, of injury clinic. Um, I think it's it's a lot about what you guys spoke to, but it's also about preparing their bodies to move and and affect and absorb load and change a direction, um, and, as well as to bring awareness, like you mentioned, Doctor Martin, to their individual potential discrepancies of they have a dominance on. A side of their body that they didn't realize they had a dominance on you know they they thought they were really strong on their right side but it turns out that they're actually stronger on their left and they figure that out through you know some of the educational awarenesses and positions that that we've devised to put these individuals through as well as for the coaches to be aware right and and i think what i really hope to see out of this continuing to grow need of reducing the likelihood of, of, of future injuries and, and lowering that incident rate is continuing to help parents, coaches, athletic trainers, strength coaches, physical therapists, physicians, PAs, nurse practitioners, you name it, have that greater awareness of the differences from side to sides and some of those natural asymmetries that may arise and then how to better prepare the individual to handle the demands of their sport. Um, you know, I, I think this is, this could get us down a, a very quick tangent rabbit hole on, you know, the, the rise of youth sports and, and, and sports specialization that we see very frequently in the state of Arizona and all the agencies and coaches who come out against, you know, single sports specialization. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, the, the component of bringing that awareness to as many people as possible, both on movement strategies, preparation, as well as, you know, what the rehab really looks like after this injury so that 
if and when it does happen, they they don't have that effect like that guy that you had in your office did that, that's going to pass out on you, right? I mean, it is still a life-changing or life-altering, I should say. It's not necessarily life-changing, but unless it's a professional athlete or aspiring professional athlete. But, you know, I, I think those are some really crucial points for, for our listeners that are out there in different parts of the country to start seeing what they can do to impact that in their local communities. Yeah. So great points, Dan. And I mean, you're really talking about kind of changing a culture, right? And so, you know, I think as we learn more and understand more about ACL injury prevention and these programs to make sure that athletes don't have imbalances and, you know, you've got uh, philosophies like postural restoration. Um, it's, it's about changing a culture, especially. So I'll use you know football as the example, because that's kind of the, the, the one you think of, right. Where, you know, traditionally it's been how do strength coaches um, get football players ready for football? Well, you know, bench press, squat, and deadlift as much as you can, and you're good to go, okay? I'm, I'm simplifying a little bit, but, you know, Tori, you can understand what I'm saying, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? So, you know, that was this this rah-rah, just be as strong as you possibly can concept, you know, probably isn't necessarily the best thing. And so as you have the development of other philosophies like postural restoration um, starting to um, make their way and permeate even into the professional level, um, you know, our Diamondbacks uh, athletic training staff is very uh, much uh, uh, skilled and trained in postural restoration. And they have implemented that into to our Diamondbacks um uh, players and and that's also now started to kind of permeate out into other uh, major league baseball teams. Um, not as uh, I, I don't see it as much in football, but you know over time maybe that that happens and so you start to see um, other training techniques being implemented into the more traditional techniques and maybe we start to see less ACL injuries in those sports at least over time. I don't know if that's the case or not, but. Um, you know, I think that all or nothing is never the answer. Right. But I think um, just like you mentioned, Dan, about overtraining in, in Arizona. Right. Just, you know, these young athletes or teenagers and they've been playing baseball year round, for example, because that's kind of the most common one I see. Um, you know, the 14 the year old who's been playing baseball year round for eight years since they were six and they're coming into the office with shoulder and elbow pain just because they've been overtraining. So, you know, being so super focused and individualized and just doing the same thing over and over and over again is probably not the best answer. It's more of a cross-training technique and implementing different uh, training philosophies, you know, a postural restoration type program, uh, a functional training program um, in with the, you know, preseason heavy, you know, lifting of weights, you know, kind of melding those things together is probably the, the right answer, but that's a cultural change in different sports. Certainly football, that's, that's a huge cultural change and it's going to take a long time for that, I think, to change over time. Yeah. And I think that's where that importance of uh, individualized specific uh, rehab comes in. You talk about the Olympic lifts or what I like to say, a lot of times people work on those mirror muscles, the muscles we can see in the fronts of our body, biceps, pecs, right. abs, quads, and boy, those look really nice in the mirror, but we have to have uh, the body, those uh, all those joints 
uh, be able to accelerate and decelerate motions. We have to have all the muscles working together to be able to minimize risk of injury, whether it's at the knee or like you said, up above. And sometimes deficits down below can lead some issues up above as well. And we go on and on about that. But that's where, you know, getting to the right physical therapist, getting the right guidance, uh, hopefully prevention, but if, if need be, and it's post-op and we need to get them back to everything they want to do for the comfort, the capability and the confidence, that's what we're here to do. And that's why it's great having this conversation with you to create better awareness and education for our listeners so they can pass information on as well. So I really value your time and insight today, Doc. Yeah, it was, it was great to be a part of this and be able to, to uh, talk about this very um, real problem that affects a lot of people. Dr. Martin, do you have any last closing comments that you want to leave, you know, our listeners to chew on or anything like that? Um, no, I mean, I think I just uh, want to thank you guys, first of all, for inviting me to uh, participate. This was a great talk. And I think uh, education is the key. The more people that we can educate um, both, you know, the patients and the support systems for the patients, parents, families, coaches, trainers, other therapists, um, you know, I think that is always the key. I'm a huge advocate for education. And so I'm always trying to educate my patients uh, and, and their support systems um, about all the factors in, involved about uh, around uh, ACL injuries and surgery and, and ACL reconstruction rehab. So I, I um, just wanted to thank you guys again. This was a great uh, opportunity. Yeah, you know, thank you very much for joining us. You know, I, I didn't mention this in the intro, but you actually are the first physician. So you will forever hold that in Therapist in Motion podcast. You're the first physician guest. So um, we very much appreciate you taking a little bit of time to join us. Um, you know, Tori, thanks for your wisdom and guidance uh, on this podcast as well. It's clearly something that you and I and obviously Dr. Martin are very passionate about uh, caring for this uh, this this patient population. Um, any last quick closing thoughts from you, Tori? No, I think we covered the, the main hitters. I Once again, it's just something I'm passionate about. If any of the listeners uh, want to reach out to me, by all means, go ahead and do so. Uh, Email is t.foster at spoonerpt.com, or I'm sure that Dr. Martin be willing to uh, have people reach out to him if, if need be. He's an excellent resource. And, uh, you know, uh, as we close, uh, Dr. Martin, I hope you have safe travels and hope all goes well at the NFL Combine next week. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate that. All right. As always, you can reach out to us with any comments, questions, and feedback at therapistsinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Thanks, guys, and have a great day.